Hello and welcome to Immunity, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Bianca Redenbaugh. And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. And we're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. Now, if you want to get in touch with us, which a lot of you have done, so thank you so much, you can email us at immunotpodcast at gmail.com. That's immunot, spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunot. Don't forget that's T-E-A. Now, time to move on to our guest for today. Dr. V. Kanedi Rao did his undergraduate and pediatric postgraduate medical training at SCB Medical College in Kotak in India, followed by hematology training at the CMC Hospital in Vellore, India, and the Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai. Dr. Rao then undertook specialized training through a hematology fellowship in Australia at Westmead and Sydney Children's Hospital followed by a Pediatric Hematology Oncology Fellowship at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland in 1995. He qualified as a Fellow of the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia. Since 2003, Dr. Rao has been a staff physician in the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda in the United States, conducting clinical research and providing care for patients with ALPS, and related disorders of the immune system with genetic underpinnings. Kanetti, you are very welcome to the show. We might start a bit more general, if you don't mind. Can you talk to us about what autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome, also called ALPS, and and other related inherited disorders are, and, and who they maybe might affect? Well, thank you for having me on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Let us start where it all started. Autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome, or ALPS, was discovered and described more clearly at NIAID in early 1990s. However, I need to give credit where the credit is due. The first article about the same condition was called pseudolymphoma or pseudomononucleosis by one Professor Gasser in Switzerland. And he described one child who presented with huge lymph nodes and did not have lymphoma. So he called it pseudolymphoma. And then there were a series of patients described by Dr. Virginia Canali and Carl Smith. They called it chronic lymphadenopathy simulating malignant lymphoma in a series of patients. However, I have practically seen or heard about all the patients described in this two papers in 1966 and 1967, because they all have nothing but as what we know today as autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome or ALPS. And they come to physicians and they present to them with big lymph nodes, big spleens, and because of the splenic sequestration and as well as their autoantibody formation in the expanding lymphocytes, they present with cytopenias. That's how they first come to the attention of hematologists. People tend to Earlier, they used to panic and worry about lymphomas and repeatedly biopsy them. But at NIH, we figured out in 1990, that was way before I started at NIH, as you already alluded to, my fellowship only started in 1995. So what happened was this particular uh, patient came to NIH to my mentor, late Dr. Steven Strauss, who is actually a medical virologist and He's con- he was considered those days as e- Epstein-Barr virus or EBV expert 
So he was looking for patients with uncontrolled EBV proliferation. So they sent all patients with big lymph nodes and big spleens that are mystery patients. They're coming to him from all over the world and mostly from United States and Canada, as you can imagine. Then what happened? One particular patient did not have EBV and had a very mysterious population of lymphocytes that were expanding in those patients. Those who are immunologists understand that in the 80s, we started, we started having a lot of benchtop uh, kind of flow cytometry available, readily available. So a lot of people were doing CD4, CD8 counts in many patients that were coming to the clinic because of the HIV epidemic that we had, unfortunately, counting the CD4 cells became a habit. So this particular patient had expansion of a population of what we call double negative D cells. That means these cells are both CD4 and CD8 negative. However, they were CD TCR alpha beta positive. So the immunologist who was running this flow Dr. Tom Fleischer came running to Dr. Steven Strauss, who is the attending on this patient, and said, I have never seen this patient population. I have no clue how, what to tell you. Then there was a bench scientist who was sitting next to Dr. Strauss, and he said, oh, I have heard about these cells, and I have seen some papers. So that around the same time, when Dr. Nagata from Japan described a mouse model and not knowing very well what is the mouse model, he called it a, a sleep model of the mouse and they're called MRLLPR mice. And these mice also had a very similar population of cells and they had a genetic defect in what they call the mouse equivalent of the FAST gene. So it was very easy for the physicians to go ahead and sequence the gene and find the FAST gene. Remember in 1995 to sequence a gene, it took almost three to six months. If we didn't, we, we couldn't do them like we do today. So uh, at the same time, a group of clinicians in Paris in Neckers also found the same patient population in 1995. Both NIH and Paris reported this particular FAST gene defect in the patients that are accumulating lymphocytes in their lymph nodes and spleen. So what does the FAST gene do? Let us think about that for a minute. This is the apoptosis promoting gene because we need apoptosis to kill off cells that we don't need because lymphocyte apoptosis is critical in order to respond to immune challenges that the body faces. So these patients have an apoptosis defect because this FAST gene is defective. So they accumulate lymphocytes in their lymph nodes and in their spleen and these lymphocytes hang in there and because they are there, they can produce all the mischief in the spleen, the peripheral blood, white cells, as well as platelets and uh, red blood cells get destroyed, what we call sequestration and antibody destruction leading to reproaring autoimmune hemolytic anemia is often noted. These are one of the most difficult patients to manage autoimmune cytopenias. And actually Dr. Strauss showed me the way how to manage and handle these patients. So I thought, oh, my calling has come. So I kind of moved to NIAID to run a clinic of ALPS for ALPS patients as a full-time job. And these patients also ultimately have a increased risk of developing lymphoma. And that is how I was in pediatric hematology oncology as a fellow in National Cancer Institute. I was called in to see a patient for Dr. Strauss to rule out lymphoma. And that was the start of my career. So I tell all the young fellows and trainees, whenever I talk to them, when somebody calls you for a consult, do a sincere consult. No, no, no consult is boring. And you never know your next job may be in that consultation. So I think I should stop here. <laughs> it's always fascinating to hear the history of a rare disease. And in this case, how people from all over the world were involved. 
You mentioned, Kennedy, the pathophysiology and some clinical features like cytopenias and lymphomas. Can you give us some ideas to the natural history of ALPS? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, most ALPS patients, as you can imagine, it is an inherited genetic disease. It is the autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance, most of the patients. And a couple of patients we have heard and seen also homozygous, like they have both copies affected. However, what is really fascinating is these patients, most often they present between the age of 2 and 12. And if you are an immunologist and you know that is the time when most children are getting immune challenged because they're going out and between 12 and 14, you see infectious mononucleosis in many patients, as you know, they get EBV infections. So their lymphoproliferation happens in that period and they often present to well baby clinic and somebody examines and this, they see a splenomegaly and then they follow these patients. And sometimes patients come with cytopenias. About a third of the patients will present with cytopenias that require intervention. Otherwise, two-thirds of these patients with ALPS, their natural history is pretty insignificant in the sense they don't require a lot of medical attention or any care. Sometimes they kind of go on into their teenage years when suddenly they come with a significant cytopenia, then you have to intervene. However, in their second decade and third decade of life, a lot of these patients have uh, what we call EBV-driven malignant lymphoma, both Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. The first paper was published by Dr. Strauss and colleagues in 2001, and we subsequently published a paper of, uh, describing the natural history of ALPS patients from 150 distinct families, about more than 220 patients, I think, are included in that paper. That came out in blood in 20. 15. And I, I will strongly recommend take a look at that paper. And Price is the first author, and I happen to be the last author. So you can look it up in the literature search. So most of the patients kind of with ALPS really don't fall apart with infections. It is not a immunodeficiency as we understand, like a combined immunodeficiency or anything. Their major problem is cytopenias, uh, autoimmune as well as sequestration-driven multi-lineage cytopenias. And ultimately, in their second and third decade, lot, a significant amount, I should say, up to 20, 15 to 20% of them develop Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. That also we describe in more detail in that paper that I was alluding to. So that because of that, we are nowadays moving towards a treatment for these patients with significant lymphoproliferation using uh, rapamycin or serolimus. And that particular treatment modality was pioneered by Dr. David Tichy at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And he published his paper in uh, blood again, I think around 2016 or 17. And uh, you can look that also up. But what is more interesting is Dr. Strauss actually taught me how to manage these patients. Because as you know, most hematologists that are managing ITP or autoimmune hemolytic anemia, they just do a crisis management. Once the counts come back to normal, they try to stop the immunosuppressive medication. And many patients don't have any genetic problems, so most of them go along because they are sporadic problems. However, patients with a primary genetic disease that is producing these autoimmune cytopenias, and I'll describe a few of them to you, require continuous ongoing treatment for the long haul. We really don't know whether they will require lifelong treatment because we haven't really followed an entire lifespan for all the patients except a few. And 
we think the treatment uh, with mycophenolate morphetil also works in a significant number of patients and that is less toxic and more easy to manage if you are just managing cytopenias but to shrink spleens and lymph nodes more kind of efficiently you need to use sirolimus or rapamycin as it is called and that seems to work very well we have patients on sirolimus first one of the first patients myself and dr tichi treated together he was 2 year old when we started on rapamycin and she is now 20 plus year old and she is going to college so that's really heartening to notice these patients because i am extremely lucky to be in the same place as you said in 2003 i started and now it is 20 years i can follow my patients for a long haul in the same institution that must be incredibly satisfying you've obviously alluded heavily there to the role of genetics in alps and disorders that are related to alps maybe could you talk to us about how important it is to always try and gain the genetic diagnosis would you always do this for every patient that would appear to you today i think the state of the art that has been uh, promoted by us as well as our colleagues from europe is if you see a patient with chronic cytopenias and more so if chronic what we call bilineage cytopenias and they are named after dr robert evans and i have actually written a commentary recently summarizing dr evans biography and he described this syndrome uh, we called all subsequently it became called known as evans syndrome but he described this about half a dozen families there he patients had autoimmune hemolytic anemia as well as autoimmune uh, platelet destruction or he called it itp and uh, that is that kind of told us that there is something going on in these patients and one father and daughter combination he described way back in 1951 saying there is a inherited pattern here so genetics is involved whenever you see chronic cytopenias either it is monolineage or more than one lineage of course multilineage autoimmune cytopenias if you see them coming and persisting in a patient i think it is more likely to be driven by some gene and i think if you ask me personally in united states today genetic testing clinical exomes and panel testing can be done and they cost less than what it will cost to do a ct scan in these patients and we'll talk about pet scans later uh, those are more expensive modalities compared to doing a genetic testing today luckily for us and they are going to it is going to get cheaper also the genetic testing as it gets more widely available all over the globe so you mentioned pet scans there so let's focus in on disease surveillance and how might you follow up these patients and the role for pet scans thank you uh, so what i was alluding to is when we first started these patients we thought aha it, there is a magic scan right there i still remember i was involved in evaluating the first patient with alps where we were suspecting lymphoma so we thought we will do a pet scan if it is lymphoma it will light up like christmas tree uh, as we know and if it is alps then it will not be as bright so we can figure it out so we created a actually a clinical protocol and i was involved closely with that and we ultimately recently published our outcome of this uh, investigation where you can do pet scans in alps patients we did it in 72 patients but it does not really help you much because usually these patients lymph nodes and spleens light up like christmas tree the only place where pet scan has a role is if you are clinically suspecting lymphoma in patients with alps 
and other lymphoproliferative genetics driven lymphoproliferative conditions which are also susceptible to lymphoma and i'll come to them a little bit later uh, is to do a pet scan to pick the hottest node and if it is accessible go and biopsy that node because these patients have always had lymphadenopathy so it's very difficult to pick and choose which lymph node to biopsy and you're always worried that I will miss the lymph node with lymphoma and I may pick up a normal lymph node so I won't get the lymph node that I want to rule out lymphoma. For instance, a cervical lymph node may have Hodgkin's lymphoma whereas the lymph node in the groin may be just ALPS-associated non-malignant lymphoproliferation. So the surgeon may think groin is easy to go so let's do an inguinal lymph node biopsy and forget the neck because neck calls for more intense the surgical kind of intervention and you don't want a head and neck surgeon and ENT surgeon and everyone coming around. So, but that is the wrong approach. You have to just do a PET scan. If PET scan shows inguinal lymph node is as hot as the lymph node in the cervix, yes, go ahead and take the lymph node biopsy from inguinal node. But other than this kind of situation where you are clearly clinically suspecting lymphoma, there is no clinical role for lymphoma surveillance using any scan, PET scan or CT scan. We have done it for every two years, every year we have done PET scans and CT scans in these patients. That does not really help you because most patients with ALPS that develop do develop lymphoma have systemic B, B symptoms, namely loss of weight, loss of appetite, significant uh, night sweats, pruritus, so all that you have to do is sit down and talk to the patient and explain to them, if you see these things, think of lymphoma. Otherwise, don't go panicking. Because sometimes clinicians that are seeing only one ALPS patient may become extremely vigilant in an unwarranted fashion and go on doing scans. And that is not helpful to anyone, as you know. I wonder, Kanetti, if we could just briefly focus on another condition that you, you work a lot on, activated PI3 kinase delta syndrome, or, or known as APDS. Can you talk to us a bit about what this disease is and maybe the genetic defect involved? Yes, but I think I would also tell you the journey into APDS, how it happened for me. So what happens is in when we started doing genetic testing in every patient with big lymph nodes and spleens coming to NIH to rule out ALPS, we found ALPS in about 66 to 75% of the patients. And ALPS patients have not only the inherited genetic defect, that is because they have inherited the defect from their parents, and it is in all the cells, in all the lymphocytes at least, in the body. So we can easily detect by peripheral blood mononuclear cells. However, a subgroup of ALPS patients, the genetic defect is limited to what we call double negative T cells, as I explained to you. So only you have to take out those double negative T cells and look at them and you will find the fast defect. And they also present with similar clinical findings as inherited uh, germline genetic defect. Then there are another group of patients where if you do a genetic testing, the genetic testing will come back normal. However, they have what we call gene deletions. So if they have gene deletion in the fast gene, they present like ALPS clinically, but they do not present with uh, the same kind of uh, defect. And when I say clinically, they not only have lymphadenopathy, splenomegaly, and increased double negative T cells. Another very important and cheap biomarker for ALF patients with a fast defect is called serum vitamin B12 elevation. So if you have very high serum vitamin B12, more than 4,000 sometimes, then they, you should suspect ALF strongly because there are practically no diseases that I know where you see very high B12 elevation with an associated genetic defect. And of course, there are other biomarkers called soluble fast ligand and IL-10 and all that. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you all this is we had 
accumulated a bunch of patients who did not have any of this. So not knowing what to call them, we, con we called them ALPS-U. That allowed me to hang on to these patients, see them every year, every two years. And one of my colleagues, who is now my, another mentor of mine from Harvard Medical School, from Boston Children's, was sending me a patient. I said, you have already ruled out ALPS. What do you want me to do with him? He said, just see the patient and think. And that is what we did. So we accumulated all these, about 30% of the patients in my cohort that uh, are about 100 patients where we did not have a genetic defect. So we started looking at them one by one, what, what they have. And one, one of those genes, the defects that showed up in a group of patients who had enlarged lymph nodes, enlarged spleen, cytopenias, and this particular girl was a survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Her doctor wanted to rule out ALS because after lymphoma treatment, she still had lymphadenopathy, but lymphadenopathy didn't have lymphoma. It was non-malignant lymphoma. He sent her to me. I couldn't find any evidence of ALPS. So I gave her to my good colleague, Dr. Gulbu Uzel, who also works at NIH and IAID. So she accumulated a bunch of patients just like this with unexplained lymphadenopathy splenomegaly. And they all have genetic defects. Again, it is an autosomal dominant genetic defect in what we call PIK3CD. And PIK3CD is a gene that produces uh, hyperactivation of P110 delta protein because of uh, the catalytic domain defect in the PIK3CD. CD stands for catalytic domain. And there is a regulatory domain that is called PIK3R1, and that also can create the similar findings. So both PIK3CD and PIK3R1 lead to a group of patients who present with ALPS-like presentation. However, they have other constellation of uh, findings in them. They have what we call increased IgM, and they also have decreased IgG. Remember, all patients with fast defect have very high IgG, if anything, what we call hypergammaglobulinemia. That is a marker of ALPS fast. However, patients with PIK3CD and PIK3R1 present with low immunoglobulins, and often they go into a immunology clinic and they are started on IVIG because they think they have CVID or some kind of immunodeficiency. They have significant sinopulmonary infections. Their lungs are damaged because of low immunoglobulins and sinopulmonary infections. They ended up with bronchiectasis and they also have significant gut-associated lymphoproliferation, uh, nodular regenerative hyperplasia, we call that in the gut. So they present with significant gut disease due to proliferation in the Peyer's patches of the lymph so these patients are known as APDS, or we also, at NIH, we called it Paisley, and I won't bore you with all the details, but APDS name kind of struck worldwide because it is easy to remember, and there were more Google hits for APDS than the name we picked at NIH. We called it PASLI. So the first author for this particular discovery paper is Carrie Lucas. She's the professor at uh, Yale now. Uh, she was a postdoc here at NIH, and uh, the paper was published in nature immunology in 2014. So that is where the first paper, and there was a, uh, at parallel, there was a paper published in Science from Cambridge, United Kingdom, and uh, that, that they, they also found a similar group of patients uh, with lung damage and lymphoproliferation, and they are the ones who coined the term APDS, and that nomenclature has kind of been adopted by the rest of the world. Thank you. That was a great summary of what APDS is. Can you talk to us a little bit about the traditional treatment for APDS? Yes. Uh, when most of these patients, even before anyone knew anything about APDS, because this is a genetic defect that we only know since in the last 10 years, as you heard me say. 
So people were giving these patients IVIG when they were first kind of uh, noticed to have low immunoglobulin, just give them IVIG. That's what the treatment we know. And that kind of kept going for some of these patients because they didn't have any other problems and their lung damage could be controlled by that. And some patients also were started on low dose uh, antiprophylactic antibiotics like Bactrim. And then some of the other patients, I think, have received some acyclovir and other uh, because of their herpes virus infections, because there is a T cell defect also in these patients. What is really characteristic in these patients is their naive B cell numbers go up and their T cells that are otherwise known as senescent T cells or CD57 positive T cells, CD8 T cells, CD57 positive T cells also go up in number. So those numbers kind of are the hallmark of diagnosing these patients if you're doing just a flow cytometry. And they have, some patients, not all, but a large group of them, at least I should say, have high IgM and low IgG, and it is because of a class switch defect, as you can imagine. So that is another aspect to remember. So these are the things, kind of clinical hallmarks you have to remember. So the traditional management has been immunoglobulin supplementation and some antibiotics. However, when our group published the first cohort of about six patients, they saw that you can reverse the PI3 kinase signal defect that these patients have hyperactivity of PI3 kinase signal by giving these patients mTOR inhibitor or the same rapamycin or serolimus that I was talking to you about in the context of ALPS treatment. So they showed that these patients, the particular cells, when you transform them in vitro, so the AKT phosphorylation, which is the hallmark of hyperactive PI3 kinase signaling gets uh, tamped down when you do the treatment with serolimus. So everyone who has read that paper, a lot of them have started treating many of these patients with serolimus. And serolimus has its own toxicities and side effects. However, I know of a lot of patients who are doing reasonably well tolerating serolimus and they're on this treatment. So on that note, in extremely exciting news for your group, the drug Leniolisib gained FDA approval earlier this year. Can you talk to us about this medication, what was involved in its development and its advancement through clinical trials all the way to approval? Thank you. What happened was this, we published our uh, initial discovery paper in 2014, I think, early 2014. And the drug company Novartis called us and said, oh, you have the disease and we have the drug. We have a small molecule inhibitor that is very much targeted to lymphocytes and neutrophils, as we can see. And you need to look at this and see if you want to run a clinical trial. So we went back and forth about that. And it took about a year or two years to develop the clinical protocol, as you can imagine. At NIH, we were extremely cautious by then in terms of using small molecule inhibitor for PI3 kinase, because there was another small molecule inhibitor named idalalisib, which was already in use in lymphoma and CLL patients. And that particular drug was used in conjunction with rituximab and other chemotherapy agents in those patient groups. And those patients had significant uh, toxicities and that was alluded to idalalisib and FDA, which had conditionally approved the medication for uh, lymphoma treatment, had withdrawn the treatment using PI3 
PI3 kinase small molecule inhibitors at that point. So we were concerned that our patients will see significant amount of toxicity and we have to treat these chronically uh, immunosuppressed patients for the long haul. And we were very cautious and scared about conducting this clinical trial. However, to cut a long story short, we did a very good peer review within our own community using lymphoma specialists at NIH, as well as pulmonologist Dr. Ken Olivier, and of course, the lymphoma specialist was Wyndham Wilson and myself and Mike Sneller, who is another very good clinician and one of the discoverer of ALPS. So we kind of put our heads together and we said, no, we should do it and see what happens. So we did a dose finding initial part, or we call it part one. Uh, we started recruiting patients in 2015 and recruitment finished by middle of 2016. And we recruited six patients into that. And we figured out that a dose of 70 milligrams twice a day is a good dose. And we did not see any significant toxicities. However, what was really gratifying is all these patients had significant shrinkage of lymph nodes and spleen that I had never seen in any patients on serolimus before that, on that degree of brisk shrinkage, because these patients only got a decent dose of uh, this the drug lineolysis for only a month, one month of uh, 10 milligram, one month of 30 milligram, one month of 70 milligram. That's how we designed the study. So at the end of that, we wrote the paper and published it again in blood in 2017 and went to back to FDA. We said, okay, if we want to get a license, how do we proceed? And can we, you look at this data, can we just do a open label trial? And FDA said, no, if you want a FDA license, you have to do a placebo controlled trial. And here I have to say, a lot of people had a lot of trepidation about putting patients on a placebo-controlled clinical trial where you will be giving a sugar pill for 12 weeks and giving the drug for 12 weeks. But what we cleverly did was we did, okay, we will do a two-is-to-one placebo. That means two patients will get the drug and one patient will get the placebo. And we could kind of convince patients and parents that, look, one out of three will get the placebo only. So that way we kind of proceeded. And we started enrolling in the clinical trial and we picked 70 milligram PID as the dose and FDA allowed us to recruit patients that were 12 years and older, but they had to have a weight of 45 kilos because the drug dosage was adjusted for that particular weight. So practically you have to take only big size children or adolescents and adults. And that went on until 2021, middle of 2021, we finished recruiting 31 patients uh, all over the globe. And it was recruited. We recruited in about uh, eight countries, I think, in Europe. And we were the only center in North America. We got a couple of patients uh, from Canada and a couple of patients from Middle East that were, we could take care of them in NIH. Otherwise, uh, most of the, more than half the patients were recruited at NIH clinical center and rest were recruited one or two patients in each center. So we finished the clinical trial and we published our paper, I think last year in November of 2022. And uh, we were awaiting FDA approval and we were really gratified to see that all this hard work paid off because I practically put my ALPS related program on the back burner, especially at COVID times when it was difficult to get patients to travel and come to NIH. And then we had to ship our samples to a central lab. All that was a daunting task with um, supply chain issues and shipment issues, as you can imagine. However, we did that and we got the 
FDA approval for this drug for 12 years and older. However, what is more important is when do you want to intervene in patients with APDS? You want to intervene before they have end organ damage. Two patients on this among the 31 patients that I am seeing is here at NIH on the long haul follow up. Two of them have one lung only or one, they have had pulmonectomies for their very bad lung disease. So you don't want to wait for that because linealist cannot fix end organ damage. However, it fixes significant lymphoproliferation in the gut, but some patients have gut like CMV colitis and uh, some patients have had significant, what we call pericarditis, constrictive pericarditis due to mycoplasma, oralis infection. Those patients did not do well because they still have their end organ damage. However, if you can give this drug to children or younger individuals before they get all this end organ damage, maybe you can prevent it. We don't know the answer yet, but we are running a clinical trial now at NIH as well as in other centers like UCLA, as well as in other countries very soon. Uh, in children older than four years to challenge them with uh, lineolisib. And this will be a open label trial. That means there is no placebo arm in this second part of the pediatric trial. And the original trial, as I told you, is, was a placebo-controlled clinical trial for 12 weeks. And at the end of 12 weeks, all patients were in, offered to enroll into what we call open-label extension arm. So we have followed um, about five patients for more than five years and 20 patients for more than two years now on this clinical trial and other patients are reaching that two-year time point very soon. So we are trying to put together some you know, abstracts as well as manuscripts to publish our long-term follow-up data with lineolisib. So we will we'll know better once we follow these patients for the long haul. And Kanati, can you give us an idea of some of the adverse effects you might expect with this new drug? That is a very important question because that is the question I get asked everywhere. And what was really surprising is contrary to our uh, worries that, oh my God, PI3 kinase uh, small molecule inhibitor will create problems because we are taking out the P110 delta. That is important for lymphocyte differentiation and all kinds of uh, physiological functions. We did not see as many side effects or toxicities that have been specifically described as the class-specific side effects in this uh, particular class of drugs, PI3 kinase, small molecule inhibitors. What we saw most commonly was a transient neutropenia. That means the neutrophil count go down from uh, 1,500 to maybe 1,000. None of the patients required GCSF or any other uh, interventions. None of them developed any infections, luckily for us. Their neutropenia improved within a couple of weeks. It is a self-limiting neutropenia. We didn't stop the drug. And a couple of patients presented with, uh, again, transient, uh, what we call alopecia. So that is kind of concerning because most of patients think, oh my God, you are giving me chemotherapy, I'm losing my hair. And uh, this particular drug is not technically a chemotherapy drug, but somehow wherever the rapidly dividing cells are, whether it is neutrophil or your hair follicle, I think it is getting affected by PI3 kinase small molecule. However, even that has recovered in all the patients that had uh, significant alopecia. One particular patient had actually lost all her eyebrows. She was concerned, but they all have completely recovered. And she continues to be on PI3 kinase inhibitor, like she continues to be on lineolisib. And all, out of the 31 patients, I think two or three of them are not on the medication for various reasons. Otherwise, others are all continuing on the medication for the long haul. And we are still watching them. Otherwise, we have not seen it. There is some 
GI intolerance, but again, that is self-limiting. We haven't stopped medication for drug-related toxicity in anyone. That's all I can say at this point. It's great that they all completely recovered. So final question, what are some of the most exciting things coming down the line from your own research and in this field in general? What should we be looking out for in the next months and years ahead? So I wanted to talk about ALPS and APDS in this uh, initial part of the presentation. However, what is more important is out of the cohort of uh, patients that we had accumulated here that had ALPS-like presentation or chronic cytopenias, let us call, with some lymphoproliferation and splenomegaly, not on the same scale as ALPS APDS, but on a different at a different level. Uh, another, a few other genetic defects have been identified in those patients. They are also ALPS-like, let us call them, if you want to. And one of them is called MAG-T1 gene defect, and that leads to a disease called X-Men disease. There also a large group of those patients go, to, go on to develop uh, lymphoproliferation driven by Epstein-Barr virus. EBV lymphoproliferation is a problem. And they develop multiple lymphomas. And there is another genetic defect to CTLA4 haploinsufficiency. And that also produces significant end organ damage affecting the brain, lungs, and gut, as well as the endocrine system. And those patients also are being managed by us in a targeted fashion by giving them what we call abatacept or CTLA4 infusions in those patients. And serolimus also helps in those patients. There is another genetic defect called STAT3 gain of function. Those patients have a start def defect, so if you can give them ruxolitinib or JAK-STAT inhibitor therapy, those patients seem to be under control to some extent. And then you can think of another disease that we saw in, in the same ALPS cohort is called RAS-associated leukoproliferative disease. And that particular disease gets confused with juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia. However, these patients, if they go to an immunologist, they think of what we call ROLD or RAS-associated leukoproliferative disease. And if they go to a hematologist, they call him JMML. So these patients have KRAS and NRAS defects. However, these defects are again somatic. They are only seen in the peripheral blood and they are not the germline defects that are associated with other rasopathies that you may have heard about. So... Another disease that came through CTLA4 is called LRBA. And again, that is a beach-like protein, and that is important to remember because LRBA defects and CTLA4 defects both can be managed using a batacept. So I think what is really important to realize is when you see a patient with chronic refractory cytopenia in your practice, and if it is particularly if it is more than one lineage, then think of a genetic etiology. Our uh, colleagues again in Paris uh, took a large cohort of patients with what we call Evans syndrome, and they found significant number, like about 30 to 40 percent of them, you can find a monogenic uh, defect. But these are all known genetic defects. At NIH, we are accumulating patients that we are trying to figure out. And the only way to go about this is to collaborate and compare gene mutations and the variants that you are seeing between different centers. And if different centers are seeing the same defect with a similar clinical phenotype, come together and analyze the data and publish the papers. Because you don't know what you don't know. So we are only looking for known genetic defects in our panel testing. And we are not looking for genes that we still don't understand yet. But I think there are ways of looking at it. Bioinformatics and genetic testing is going to change the field. And we are going to see more and more genetic defects in uh, what we call inherited uh, errors of immunity that our IEI 
that will come up associated with the chronic cytopenias and that is very important to keep that in mind i think because i think this is the this is the most important aspect to keep in mind that we are heading towards targeted treatments of these diseases and not um, basically not not just Uh, treating their immune system with uh, immunosuppression with high dose pulse dose corticosteroids and among my colleagues that do bone marrow transplantation that is a hubris that oh my god i can transplant anything walking and i should transplant children so that they don't develop uh, comorbidities as they grow old but if you go and look at the data carefully i mean the outcomes are not uniform in all these genetic defects you cannot transplant everyone with the same conditioning regimen you have to tailor the conditioning and significant amount of graft failure happens in a subgroup of these patients i'm talking about all of them as a group and you may fix their uh, hemopoietic system with transplanting them but lot of these genetic defects have significant end organ damage or other problems that will come up later in life so you may not be fixing that especially endocrinopathies that you see in patients with pic3 r1 as well as patients with ctlf4 you may not be fixing that by just bone fixing their bone marrow so that is important to remember That is absolutely fascinating. Dr. Kanati Rao from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda in America. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. That was brilliant. Targeted therapies are so exciting. I thought what he said about surveillance imaging not being as good as actually talking to the patient for things like ALPS was fascinating. And I think another thing he said is pretty good advice for all immunologists. Just see the patient and think. That's definitely amazing advice. See the patient and think. One of the things I couldn't believe he was saying from a hematologist was that the bone marrow transplantation process isn't the be all and end all of treating people. And I guess that makes so much sense. As immunologists, we often see it as the definitive treatment for a lot of the diseases that that we would treat in our clinics. But of course, these are genetic diseases and there are other end organs that are affected. And sometimes you need to think away from stem cell transplantation and towards long-term treatments. I really thought that was amazing to hear. Yeah, that was amazing and unexpected. I also think it's so interesting that more and more genetic defects are being identified as causes for inborn errors of immunity. Maybe in 40, 50 years down the line, common variable immunodeficiency or CVID may not even be a thing anymore and we'll have a genetic diagnosis for all immunodeficiencies. It would be really amazing if that was the way it went. And I suppose as always, that brings our episode to a close. And I regret dipping my toe in the water on the last episode and and actually attempting a joke. So I'm (laughs) going to leave the joke telling to you for now. What have you got for us today, Bianca? Well, good thing I've got one ready to go then. And as always, there's a link to today's show, but this one might be a little more tenuous than normal. Okay, how do you make a Swiss roll? Oh, uh, I don't know, Bianca, how do you make a Swiss roll? Push him off the Alps. Oh my God. Alps. (laughs) I get it, I get it. That was definitely a tenuous link at best, but I did actually like it, so I'll give you that. Okay, I think you've heard enough from us for this month. If you want to get in touch with us, don't forget you can give us your comments and your questions about the show. You can get us at immunotpodcast at gmail.com. That's immunot, spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunot. Don't forget that's T-E-A. 
We'd like to say thank you to our guest today, Dr. V. Kanetti Rao, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and to our editor, Aidan McKelvey. And thanks so much to you for listening, and we'll chat to you again next month. Goodbye for now.